We are, uh, today, next week we'll start a new series called, uh, Me and My Big Mouth, I think is what it's called. We're going to talk about, we're going to be talking about, this thing ain't working. Uh, we're going to be talking about the use of your mouth. And the thing about that is a lot of times we tend to think that's just kind of a physical issue and not so much of a spiritual issue. But it is very much a spiritual issue as well as a physical issue. And uh, the scripture says so much about our mouth. It speaks to so much about how it affects us in our spiritual life with, other, with God and with our physical life with other people. So we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks about, there he goes, uh, about our mouth. And so I'm very, very excited about that series. Today's going to be a little different. As we ended the series last week, and today we're kind of on this holiday weekend, we're going to kind of stand on our own. And what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, uh, the last several weeks I've been asking you to send me some questions. Just ask the pastor, what was something you'd want to ask? And so many of you sit in, some of you sit in questions, and uh, we got them from both here locally as well as other places. And, and I part them down to six questions I kind of want to jump into. And, and today these aren't necessarily tough questions in that some sense. I'm not going to go in here and try to do a a deep expose of Romans chapter 9, because it would just, this is not necessarily the format for that, and be like, what are you talking about? So we're, we're not really going to do that, but there are some questions, and some of these are going to be more intellectual in their content. Some of them are going to be more life app in their content, because I hope by the end of the day, we spend a little time both challenging sometimes your mind and your intellect over some things, and maybe you walk away and say, oh, I didn't know that, 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 that kind of makes sense logically. And for some of the other things, uh, we'll, we'll challenge to your heart a little bit and challenge some things in your heart uh, about, uh, you know, about some things that God would want you to know. So we're going to dive into these questions. And the first one is, is one of those hard questions, those heart questions. But I loved it. I love the questions of self. I love the mind of the asker and how they're uh, just thinking about who they are in God's economy. And this first question reads like this. is, what are three biblical truths? You would think Jesus would want me to think about each day. Now, that's more of a hard question. Let me, let me say on this, again, if you're one of those guys that you wanted to get a verse of Scripture, want us to break it down, we're not doing that today. I'm going to mention uh, chapters and stuff of where some of this stuff comes from that maybe you can go back and look at. But that's just not my goal today. My goal is just to take these questions and kind of, from a biblical perspective, kind of answer them. Next week, we'll jump into Scripture. In fact, we're going to spend two weeks over about the same Scripture in the next couple of weeks. But today, let's over So, what are three biblical truths you think Jesus would want, to, want me to think about or focus on, I kind of took that as, each day? Now then, you can answer this question. I'm going to ask it from the, answer it from the Christian perspective. What would he want a Christian to kind of focus on, think about every single day of their life? When they get up, these are the things that are rolling around in their head. That's kind of the way I got the question. It's written by a Christian, so I'm going to answer the long answer from that perspective but let me say this if you are not a follower of christ here's what jesus wants you to think about every day is one number one that he loves you that he loves you that he doesn't need you but he wants you it's nice to be needed but it's so much better to be wanted that god wants you and when he came to the one thing that could separate you from him that is your sin he didn't overlook it tonight because his holiness, as we'll talk about in a minute, wouldn't allow him. But what he did was he came down and he paid the penalty. He, he took care of the one thing that would separate you from him and so that, he could be, uh, so that he could have you. God doesn't need you, 
but he wants you. And that's every day he would just, he would want you to think you're wanted. You are wanted. You are wanted. The cross is proof and evidence that you are wanted, even though God doesn't need anything. And it's so much better to be wanted than needed. So that's what I'd say to you. But for the Christian, here are the three things I would, I would say that every day you get up, Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to think about. This is what I want you to think about. The first one is this, simply two words, follow me. Follow me. And at first that means like, uh, yeah. But that is, that is not how most of us think when we get up. Because I, will, I would dare to say this, that most of us, us meaning the Christian body, we've reduced Christianity, daily Christianity, to believe in me. We think that's what Jesus would say, is believe in me. The way we live our life is such that all I really need to do is I need to believe the right facts. That's, what's the, that's what the thing about it is. That's the, that's the core. That's the, the thing every day. As long as I have the right beliefs, then I'm okay. And we kind of live our life that way. I believe in Jesus, now I go live my life. I believe in Jesus, I go live my life. As if what Jesus is saying, the primary thing I want you to think about every day is to believe in me. But no, no, no. To say that's what the Christian life is about is like saying a marathon is about getting up in the morning and putting on your shoes. Yes, putting on some good shoes is the first part of running a marathon, but it's not the marathon. When Jesus called his disciples, he always used the phrase, come follow me. He didn't say come believe in me, though that's part of following. He said come follow me because believing is kind of a, a static thing. You, you make that choice to believe it. It's kind of a decision of the mind. But following is more kinetic. Following is something that you have to work on. If we're getting in a car and going somewhere, and if I believe you're going to get to the, to the destination, and, and I believe I'm going to get to the destination, well then, you know, you go, I'll go, we'll go. But if I'm following you, I have to constantly be looking up because you're changing lanes. You're maybe going a different route that I may think you're, uh, that we're supposed to go, but I'm following you. So I've got to go where you go. So if you, I've got to keep watching where you're leading me. If you exit, I've got to exit. You know, if I'm not paying attention, you may go off one way, and I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 where do we go? I stopped following. Jesus' call on our life is every day to get up is realize the call on my life is to follow him. And if I'm truly going to follow him, that's a kinetic activity. I've got to constantly be looking for him. I've got to be looking on where he's leading me. I've got to be looking for him by, in scripture, what he's saying to me. That's why it's so important that we take a daily diet of scripture. Because following Jesus is a kinetic thing. Following Jesus is something that I've got to constantly be in work on. It's not, I believe in Jesus, now I'll go to school. I believe in Jesus, now I'll go to work. I believe in Jesus, now I'll live my life. Going to school, I'm following Jesus. Going to work, I'm called to follow Jesus. Doing my life, my life is about following Jesus. That's the call. And that takes constant looking internally and saying, where am I? Am I following Jesus? It's constantly looking externally. Jesus, where are you at work around my life? Where are you calling me to follow you? It's constantly taking in scripture because through that I hear him calling me forward. So the first thing, every day I would say that Jesus, the biblical truth Jesus wants you to remember is this. Follow me today. Follow me today. Which would cause us, if we did that, to ask a question. Where in my life am I not following Jesus? Because it's possible to have areas of our life, because we, we are really good at compartmentalizing our life, that we don't follow him. But that's the call. And that's what I would present to you today. Or there's somewhere in your life that you're not following Jesus. Maybe it's in how you're treating someone. Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe it's how you're handling your time, energy, money of life. Where in your life are you not following Jesus and his principles? 
because that's the call on life. So the first thing, God, I got to go faster than this. The first thing is God's call is to follow me. That's what Jesus, the second biblical truth, I would say that Jesus wants you to think about every morning you get up is that it's not about you. It's not about you. You say, what's it? Everything. It's not. Your life is not about your happiness. You know that? From God's perspective, life isn't about your happiness or your agenda or your wants. Those are things that God will meet along the way. But that's not what it's about. What it's about is living out God's purpose. And God's purpose, most often on this earth, is not going to be what can be done to you or for you. It's going to be what God can do through you for other people. Did you hear me? Most of the time, God's purpose for your life on this earth, because when we get to heaven, then it's just all about us having a great time. But on this earth, God's purpose in your life is primarily not going to be what God can do for you or, or, or what others can do for you or what life can do for you. It's going to be what God can do through you for the life of the people that he pa- puts in your path. And he wants you to remember that. Heading out to work and say, you know, it's about what, what the people that God puts in my path. A couple weeks ago in the, a series we were doing, I said, remember, naturally in our sinful nature, we approach every environment of our life asking this one question. What can I get today? We don't even realize we ask that question, but we do. When you came in here today, the, probably the question that you naturally ask is, what can I get today? God, what can I get? What can I get from this church? What can I get from worship? What can I get, what can I, you know, what can I get today? We just ask that question without even realizing it. That's a primary question we ask everywhere we go. But God challenges us to change and make the primary question we ask wherever we go is, what can I give today? What can I give to the people that God puts in my path? What can I give both just the people who are sitting around me at church? How can I reach out? What can I give to the people that I work with? What can I contribute to make my environment at work or my environment, my friendship, or environment at school a better place? What can I give today? Why? Because it's not about you. Follow me. It's not about you. And the last one is this. I think the last biblical truth that's big in Scripture that God wants you to think about every day is this. Uh, Expect God to do God-sized things. The reason we have the stories of the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that were, that were told, either you bow or we're going to throw you in this furnace and you're going to die. They didn't bow. Or whether it was Daniel in the lion's den. Or he said, stop praying or we're going to throw you in the lion's den. They didn't stop praying. Or whether it's David and Goliath, where everybody else was scared. Read that story sometime in 1 Samuel and read that story about David's attitude when he went down into that, that valley where that giant was. The attitude that took him there was that he expected God to do God-sized things. Now, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, both those stories, those guys didn't know whether they'd make it through the night or not. In fact, I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. said, we're not going to bow because we know our God can save us out of that furnace. You can throw us in it. And, but he goes, but even if he doesn't, we know our God is so great, we're not going to bow. I love that. But the names of people we, that God, of the people God thought so much of that he wanted us to know their name, were the names of people who lived with this attitude where they expected to God to do God-sized things. And I think God would lean over to all of us and say, do you expect me to do God-sized things in your life? Maybe it's for you, maybe it's not for you, maybe it's what I do through you for somebody else. But do you live with the expectation that my God is the king of the universe? And that kind of God just does God-sized things. That's, that's what he does. So I expect through my life, God is going to do God-sized things. It's not going to throw me off. In fact, I'm going to ask God for some God-sized things for him to do that through my life. Imagine if we went through life just believing that God was going to do God's things. Guess what? You wouldn't worry about a lot of things that you worry about because you know that God is bigger than those things and God does God's size things. So no matter how big the circumstances are, no how overwhelming they are, you wouldn't be overcome with them. You may be worried about them, but you wouldn't be overcome with them. Why? Because you expected God to do God's size things. Imagine if you lived your life with that kind of expectation. Three things that I believe that would improve your life and I believe today that God will want every Christian to wake up every day 
and have these three things at the forefront of the mind. It's number one, it's not about believing, it's about following. Follow me. Number two, it's not about me. What's it? Everything. Everything. It's not about my friendships aren't about me. My marriage is not about me. My place, my family is not about me. Uh, my work is not about me. It's about what I can contribute there. It's not about me. And when I make it not about me, God will reward me one day for that. And number three, uh, I'm going to live my life expecting God to do God-sized things. And when there's big problems, I'm just going to live over him, him to handle it because he's a guy that does God-sized things. I tell you, if you woke up every day and left your house, no matter what you faced, with those three things as the major motivation of how you approach life and how you handle life, wow. One, you would connect greater with the purpose of God. And two, you would end up with a lot less worry and concern in life because you would shift it over to God's responsibility. Man, I, I love that question. Here's the second question that someone sent in, and that's this. This was a little more intellectual. That's this. Is the great white throne in Revelation 20 and the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 the same thing? The answer is no. Let me break it down for you. The Bible speaks about how God, by his grace right now, his judgment for sin is being held back. His holiness always demands that there's a judgment. And one day that grace is going to release the holiness of God and God's judgment is going to come upon humanity. That's when time is going to come in. It says all humanities that, that does not have forgiveness on their life are going to be brought before the great white throne of God for judgment. Now then, a little on that, sometimes I hear people talk about if God is a loving God, why would he send anybody to hell? I mean, if he's really a God of great love, why would he send someone to hell? That drives me crazy because God doesn't send anyone from hell. You know what hell is? Hell is simply you getting payment for what you deserve. It's, hell is simply separation from God. God doesn't send anyone from hell. It, it's kind of like this. If you were, there was a crime, and you had committed a crime, right? And the judgment for the crime was 100 years in prison. You committed a crime. You were told, with this, if you commit this crime, you'll get 100 years in prison. You know it. You know you're guilty. I know you're guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty. The judge knows you're guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty. And you know, you're constantly told, hey, this is the penalty for this crime. It is 100 years in jail. But you know what? One day someone coming to you and said, you know what? There's this guy that was 100, that was, uh, he's 102 years old. It's crazy. But he spent 100 years in jail. Went into jail for two years old for a crime that he did. Take the story as it is. But he spent 100 years in jail, right? We found out he wasn't guilty. So know what we're willing to do? The judge now says that he will take what the, he paid the price for the crime, that he didn't do it. But he'll take what he paid for, and he'll apply it to you because you're guilty. And so you're still guilty, and, and it still has to be paid for. But this guy paying for it, they're going to allow it to be applied to you. It's offered to you. You can take it. There's some challenges. You've got to change the way you're living, but, but, it, but it's, it's free to you. You don't have to do anything to get it. We'll give it to you today, and you'll be, you won't have to go to jail. You're still guilty, but you won't have to go to jail. And you said, no, no, thank you. I kind of like my life. I like what I'm doing. I like how I'm living it. I don't really know this guy. I don't know if he really spent 100 years in jail and all that. You're telling me that's true. I don't really know about that. I'm just not into that kind of stuff. I just want to be left alone and live my life. And you do. One day, the judge comes to you and hauls you into court and says, all right, you did this crime. You did the crime. You know you did the crime. I know you crime. Everybody knows you did the crime. You're guilty of the crime. And the fair punishment was, you knew it ahead of time. Everybody knows ahead of time, was that you would spend 100 years in jail. So you need to go spend 100 years in jail. Would it be fair for you to go, whoa, 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 judge? 
I hear you were a loving judge, a compassionate judge. Why would you send me for hell? How fair is that? The judge would go, I'm not, I'm not sending you anywhere, really. I'm just giving you what this crime does, the penalty of this crime. It's, you knew this ahead of time. This was coming. This was the penalty for the crime. You committed the crime. I'm not putting on something on you that, that you're not guilty of. You committed the crime. I'm just giving you what you've earned, I guess. And he went on. The judge didn't send him to hell. His choice is what got him, or sending him to prison. His choice is what got him to hell. The same thing is with a judgment, the great white throne, the judgment seat of God, the Father, is God is just going to give us what we've chosen. And when we choose separation from God on this earth, it is made permanent in heaven because that's what our sin gets us. So that's what that is. But there is also talked about in Scripture, Paul writes to Christians and he says that all of us, talking about those of us who are in Christ, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, and we will be given that which we have earned through our deeds in the flesh. One way he says, you'll be recompensed for the deeds you did in the flesh. What he is telling us there and what God is making us aware of there is that there is an accountability for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Heaven is not an issue. We're going in Christ. Our sins that separate us from God are, have been taken care of. They've been applied to the guy that spent 100 years in jail. So we won't have to spend the 100 years in eternity, but you get the, uh, the metaphor there. We won't have to do that. That's been taken care of, and we will spend the rest of eternity with God. That's settled. But he also wants us to understand that how we live out our faith, how we live out the grace that's been given to us, that God is watching, and God is going to hold us accountable. That can be good or, or challenging. It can be good because he says, store up your treasures in heaven. What's he saying there? There is going to be an accounting for the way you live, and he knows we're not perfect. But there's something healthy in us understanding that as Christians, there is going to be a moment where we stand before Jesus and we are held accountable to how we lived out our life of faith. There is something humbling in that. There is something healthy in that. There should be something inspiring in that. But there also should have some, a sense of healthy fear in that. That all of us are one day going to stand before, I'm talking about those of Christ, we're going to stand before Christ, and we're going to be held accountable to the life that we live. That makes uh, the answer to question number one even more important. Even more important that every day we wake up that we remember that it's about following Jesus. It's not about us. It's about expecting God to do God-sized things. Why is that so important that we wake up every day with that mindset? It's because one day, though we don't have to worry about the great white throne judgment seat of the Father, one day we are going to be held accountable for, before Jesus for the life that we lived while in the flesh, how we lived out our faith. And God will reward us, and God may discipline us. What that looks like, I don't know. I do know this, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about all of us under Jesus' grace that we're going to be in heaven, we're going to be saved, we're going to be for eternity with God. But in that verse it says, as if through the flames, which means some people who have the grace of Jesus on our life, but they did not live out that faith well, they're going to get in because under the grace of Christ, but they're going to be smelling like smoke a little bit. You know, they're going to be a little singed. God says there is an accounting 
for how we lived our life in the, in the flesh. It has nothing to do of God's acceptance of you and God's love for you, though your place before him has nothing to do with that. But there is going to be an accounting for that. And I, 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 I need that. I need that. I need that in my life to hold me accountable to live in a way in this world that's not the cultural flow where everybody else. I need that accountability to, to cause me to keep walking the narrow way that's not the popular way in life. It's healthy for us, and we need to be aware of it. So those are two different things in Scripture, the great white throne and the judgment seat of Christ. All those who come without Christ's forgiveness on the life or for the great white throne, that's a horrible place to stand. It's still a great place to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but it should remind us now that there is some accountability for the way we live our life. And that should humble us. Third question is this, and I get this a lot, believe it or not. Will there be dogs in heaven? Now that's the question, but most of the time the question comes in is, will my, my dog be in heaven? Will my little kitty cat, will my little per- parakeet, my little, as a friend of mine once had, my little pig. Who has a pet as a pig? I don't know. But anyway, will they be in heaven? Uh, is there a scriptural response to that? I think there is. And I, the answer is no. But hang on with me. Because, because there's a verse that says the spirit of man ascends and the spirit of animal descends into the ground. And, I, and what my interpretation of that verse is that God is saying that there's something eternal about the spirit of humanity that we ascend into heaven. And there's something that's not eternal. The spirit of the animal descends into the ground, which means, what he's saying is, it goes where the body goes. And our body goes into the ground, it decays. That's the part that's not eternal. That's the part that is temporal. And that's where the, 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 our, our little, little, little dog goes. That it goes into the ground. And appreciative for our time that God has given us with that animal, because they can become part of the family. Now, that's not the question they asked, though. I thought the question was great. The question was, will there be dogs in heaven? That's an interesting question. Because why? In Revelation chapter 21, it says that when all the, you know, the throne is over and all that, and God has separated those who do not know him and doesn't want his grace to those that do. When those that, know, that, that are under his grace, he says that we will go to a new, and the word new means here uh, fresh or refreshed, a, a new, a fresh or refreshed heaven, and there will be a new or refreshed earth. It doesn't just say heaven. It says a new heaven, a new earth. In fact, it says the old, and the word old here in the original language meant the first. It really means the first. The first heaven and the first earth will be done away with. What that means is this. Heaven, there's going to be that time after the judgment, after times we know it comes in, that the earth is here, affected by sin. It's not what God originally created it to be. And then there's heaven out there separated by time, space, both physically and spiritually. That that is going to be done away with as we know it. And that there's going to be this bringing together of heaven where God's throne is. And there's going to be an earth still. There's still going to be an earth. And it's going to be a fresh or refreshed, renewed earth. And they're going to be brought in the sense of close proximity to each other where we no longer, the scripture says, we'll no longer need the sun for it's the holiness of God will light the earth. And so there will be this new place where the, the, the people of God will spend eternity. So heaven right now, as you think about it, where God's throne is, that's temporary. That's where those who follow Christ go when they die here before time as we know it ends. That's temporary. That's going to be done away with as it is. Earth here as we know it right now is effective sin. It's going to be done away with. 
and there's gonna be this bringing together of a new heaven and a new earth. This earth, the physical aspect of this earth, was it changed? God created trees when the earth was, as originally created, sinless, and animals, and streams, and, and all that. He, said, he didn't say that's going to be done away with. He says it's going to be renewed as it originally intended. It's going to be refreshed. And so I tell people this a lot. If you really want to know, at the end of time, where we're going to spend eternity, don't go outside and look up. Go outside and look around. Because it's not going to be us all playing on harps floating on clouds. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to live on earth. We're going to live on earth. A new earth. Without it, it affected by sin. But assuming that's what it is, I can only assume that it's going to have a lot of things that the original earth had on it before sin affected it in any way. And one of the things it had, it had creation. So there'll be trees. Grand Canyon might still be there. Will it be making Atlanta? I don't know. But there will be places for us to live. There will be a creation as we know it. And a part of creation is the animal life. He doesn't say there's a whole new place. It's nothing like earth and all that. He says there's a new and refreshed heaven. There's a new and refreshed earth. And we will be in earth. And God's throne will be near in, in heaven. But it will be one kind of meld together place. So... Will there be dogs in heaven? Not now, because the place where we go to is kind of that holding ground until the end of time. But when the new heaven and new earth arrives, maybe. Because the original earth that God is going to kind of bring it back to had animals, dogs. They weren't in conflict with each other. You know, it says, it says in, this, in the end time that the lion will lay down with the lamb. There won't be that conflict. The animals won't be afraid of humanity and us afraid of them and all that. There'll be a lot that's different on the physical and spiritual realm. But yeah, there very well could be. And this is my supposition based upon how Scripture descri uh, describes the future. It very well could be that there could be animals in heaven. So your little, little puppy dog may not be there, but there might be a little puppy dog you can fall in love with in heaven. So in that one answer, I first ticked off everybody that wanted their dog in heaven, and now I made them happy because they may find that a dog again. That's the most political answer I can give. But that's just interesting to me because a lot of times we forget that, how God describes the end. We just think we're going to die, we're going to go to heaven, and we're going to float on clouds, and it's going to be perfect. We're going to play a harp, and we start thinking, that's so boring, I don't really want to go, right? But that's not how it's described in Scripture. It's going to be a fantastic place. And just like the earth is managing now, the new earth will be managing. And so we'll have jobs. And maybe that's part of that accountability thing. Maybe those of us who are very self-focused on ourselves and our advancement and our stuff and our whatever we can have are the janitors in heaven. And those who sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed on this earth for the glory of God are living in the biggest house. Now let me ask you a question. Would you rather live in a big house now and be the janitor of heaven later or would you rather sacrifice for Jesus now and live for other people and be in a mansion for eternity? Not a bad question to ask yourself uh, as we do that. So, but whether you're the janitor or in the mansion, you'll be just glad you're there under the grace of Christ. So it'll be great no matter what. Uh, question number four, and that is this. What is the purpose uh, or, or maybe it's a little different here. I think I changed it a little bit. I did to make it a little more understandable from what it was originally written. Why is the tone of the Old Testament 
so different from the New Testament? I thought that was a great question. And that was this. If you go to the Old Testament, the tone is pretty harsh, right? The tone of the Old Testament is an eye for an eye. The, uh, the tone of the, uh, of the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah, got so bad, well, God just took the whole place out. There are verses in the Old Testament that says, if you disrespect your parents, and there's a lot of reasons for why they're saying this, I've explained them before, but it's still pretty, pretty rough. If you disrespect your parents, if you don't show honor to your parents, you are worthy of death. You could actually get the death penalty for that. And some parents, <laughs> maybe we need to bring that back. But anyway, you know, if you, it just, it was very harsh. Where in the New Testament, you have the woman who was caught in adultery, who by the standard and by the law of, uh, that she was worthy of being stoned to death. Jesus doesn't debate that. But he goes over and says, those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. And no one did. And he looks at her and says, since they won't condemn you, neither will I. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say she didn't sin or he wouldn't, you know. She, he just says, I'm not going to. All of a sudden, there's a lot more grace being projected. He talks to the woman at the well. It was a Samaritan woman and Jewish people who Jesus was. Didn't talk to Samaritans. You thought they were worse than dogs. But Jesus talked to her. That's why she's so shocked when you read the story. Read the story sometimes of the woman of the well. She's like, why are you talking to me? You're not supposed to talk to me. But Jesus did. And so there's this whole kind of attitude in the Old Testament that was pretty harsh. And here's right and here's wrong. And the payment from And then the New Testament is so much grace. And some people say, well, you know, that's the old. It's passed away. The new is, that's not it at all. The reason for that is this. You will never fully embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. God understood this. You will never fully embrace that until you realize how much you need it. And that's true with a lot of things. For instance, if you're driving your car and you have never, ever experienced a flat tire, never, or any type of car trouble, never experienced a flat tire, never been around somebody with a flat tire, never had a flat tire, never seen anybody with a flat tire, never heard a story of anybody ever having a flat tire. Guess what you're going to think about the jack that's in your trunk? You're not going to think much of it. In your perspective, you don't need it. It's not precious. But like me one time, I one time kind of, you know, this jack was in there. I, don't really, I knew I might need it or something like that, but I didn't really realize how terrible a lot of those jacks are that they put in your trunk originally. They're awful. You know, you're trying to get them. Until one night, in the middle of the night, it was raining and everything, and I had a flat tire. And I got that jack out, and you're, you're trying to get it up, and it keeps falling over until you get it set and all that kind of stuff. Guess what I did the next day? I went and bought me a little hydraulic jack, and I put it in my car. Because what? It wasn't until I needed it, until how much I realized that I needed it, that I realized how important it is to have a good jack. That's just human nature. For us to really understand the desperate need we have for the grace of Jesus Christ uh, on our life, we first have to understand just how much we need it and how we understand that. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament was God showing his grace was kind of in the, it was there because he gave us the sacrificial system so he wouldn't just completely pour his holiness and judgment upon us. But his grace was kind of taking a back step and his holiness was taking the front step. And holiness always demands a payment for sin. 
And so the Old Testament was the law. Here's the standard. And if you don't live up to the standard, here is God's judgment. Sometimes he used nations to judge uh, the people. Sometimes he used the, the judgments of the judicial system where it's like, if you did this, you're going to be stoned, and you're going to be stoned, and you're going to be stoned, and this is it. It's why Sodom and Gomorrah, and we just see this God of holiness, the judge on the throne, just holding everyone accountable to sin. And we learn from that. The, Holy, the, the, the Old Testament, part of it is just, yes, historical and helping us to understand the, where the Jews came from and where Jesus came from. But a big part of the overwhelming message is this is what the holiness of God looks like. This is what the holiness of God requires. It is a spotlight on the holiness of God. So that when I read it and I see that, I stand here and realize I'm sinful. I'm, my life and my sin attracts the judgment of God. God's holiness demands that God judge the sin of my life. And as I see the Old Testament, it gives me that place where I want. I see my need. And it's only when I see my need, well, I then turn and say, I need help. Because if I don't, if I don't find forgiveness, the holiness of God that you see in the Old Testament is going to hold me accountable for the sin of my life. And what I deserve is separation from God because he is holy and he can have nothing to do with anything that's not holy. And so the Old Testament is to bring me to a place where I see my need because only when I see how much I need forgiveness, well, then in turn and say, where is it? And the New Testament steps in, and on that one, the holiness of God steps back. It doesn't disappear. It steps back, and the spotlight shifts to the grace of God. God is both holy, and he's both a God of grace. And then Jesus steps out, and he is the, the, the spotlight of God's grace. And he doesn't overlook sin. He looks at the lady who was condemned, who caught in adultery, says, go and sin no more. The lady at the well where he shows her grace, he still says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have, have a husband. He says, I know, you have had several husbands, blah, blah, blah. He holds us accountable because his, his holiness demands it. But we see the grace of Jesus in his life and, of course, in his death and resurrection. The reason I embrace the cross, the reason I, I seek Jesus, the reason I give my life over Jesus and I embrace his forgiveness is because I realize how much I need it. And I would never really know how much I need it unless I saw what God's holiness does when sin is around. And that's why the Old Testament is so powerful and so important, both from a historical, just so we know where the Jews and, the, and Jesus came from, but from a spiritual standpoint, whenever you read those stories and they seem harsh, remember this is what holiness looks like without grace. And then grace comes in through the, through the New Testament and we see grace in Jesus Christ. If I never saw the whole testament, I would never really understand how much I need Jesus. It would seem like a nice story that maybe I ought to listen to, but it wouldn't seem something that I greatly need. And it's through that Old Testament that my need is revealed. So they're, they're not old and new. It's not past and present. It's two wonderful aspects of God because God is both fully holy, which demands that sin be held accountable for. And God is a God of absolute grace. He says it has to be accountable for. Sin has to be paid for. My holiness demands it. But my grace says I'll pay for it myself. And that's what the cross is about. And so it's a beautiful mixing of the character and the message of God that leads us to the cross. So the Old and New Testament both are so incredibly, incredibly important. 
All right. I'm going to go through these last two so quick, if I can. And the, the last one was sent from a guy out of state, but I thought it was a great one. He says, how do I show compassion to everyone in a way they feel is real and yet take a stand for the narrow way that God speaks about in Scripture? In James chapter 1, it says, he who does not have wisdom, let him ask, and God will give it liberally. I think this question and this dilemma is one of the reasons why every day we should ask for wisdom because it is sometimes hard to know. Because on the one hand, we are to take a stand. You know, we are to take a stand what's right and what's true and truth in, in, in this world and life. But the other times, we are also called to be a people of grace. That we are to love those who are unlovable. We are to love those who are our enemies, those who are against what we are all about. We are to love those people. And sometimes it's so hard to know, when should I take a stand, even if it's unpopular? And when should I just kind of love people where they're at? And sometimes it, it, sometimes it requires both of those. Sometimes it requires more than the other. And, and wisdom is what's needed to know which one is the appropriate thing to give in the moment. Because you need both. And it's hard to know. There are times when Jesus, you know, turned the tables of the money changers. He was bold. Nicodemus going and asking for Jesus' body when he was a Pharisee. And no one liked Jesus. They wanted to just get him away. And that was kind of bold for him because it put a lot at risk. And then there's Jesus with the, with the adulterous lady. There's Jesus with the woman at the well. And he just showed grace and grace and grace. So it's, it's hard to know sometimes uh, which one to do. But I will say this. That's where you ask for wisdom. And in those moments, just... Just ask God, you know, God, what should I do? Is this a moment you want me to stand? This is a moment you want me just to, just to love and let my love make my statement for me? Is a moment of a mixture of both those things? I think it's just one of those things where you just constantly be praying about, God, give me the wisdom here where I'm to speak or I'm just to be quiet and love. But even in those moments, if you don't know what to do, here's what my advice would be for you. If you don't know what to do in one of those moments, let love win. Just love. Just love the person where they're at. That a lot of times will shock them because they may expect you won't love them, depending on the, what it is that they're up to or doing. But in the end, just if you don't know, and I don't want to give a cop out because you, sometimes you're going to need to stand, but just love. Just love them because here's what I've discovered. If you love them, you'll have other opportunities to take your stand. In fact, if you just love them and, and make that, if you're going to falter one way, falter on loving them, then somewhere down the line, they may open the opportunity for you to explain why you stand on some things that you stand. And, but if you immediately go to taking the stand and letting them know how they're wrong, then that, that window of opportunity, a lot of times if they don't know that you love them, but you're taking this confrontive stance in their face, they're not going to listen to what you're, you're the truth you're standing for anyway until you build that platform of love in their life. And they say you, can say, you, you are concerned with about them as much or more than the issue that you're, that you're passionate about. Uh, so they, they won't even listen to you then, and, they will not, and you will close the door for them to listen to you in the future. So is it easy to know which is which? No. I will say Jesus took more stands against those who were proclaimed to be Christians than he did those who weren't. But still, it's hard to know sometimes, and that's why God says pray for wisdom, pray for wisdom, pray for wisdom, because that will help you out. But in the end, if you're not sure, choose love, because love will allow you to have a platform, and somewhere down the line the door will open up again for you to take that stand at the right moment in which they're listening. <clears throat> Last one is this. I love this question. Why did God put the serpent in the garden? I love that. Because if God is a sovereign God, he's put in control of all things, and he created all things, 
He put the serpent in the garden that tempted Eve, and she chose to bind to the message of the, of the serpent. And that's where sin was created that has affected both the created and spiritual world. Then why did God put the serpent? Wouldn't it the easy thing just never put the serpent in the garden? Couldn't you turn around and say, God, you're to blame for the sin? Because you had the power to never put the serpent in the garden. And then as a result, if you wouldn't have done that, there would have been no temptation and thus no sin, and then everybody would have been happy. I would answer that question this way. God understands this kind of truth. Of those you are married, are you glad that you chose to fall in love with the person you're in love with? You know, you met them. Maybe it wasn't love at first sight. Maybe it was. But you met them, and you became friends with them, and the interest grew out of there, and you experienced some things together, and you fell in love together, and you, you, you chose to to say yes or you chose to say will you marry me and you chose to get you chose to get married together and 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 go through life and protect that marriage and keep it safe and grow it and add to it and would you were you glad it was that kind of journey or whether you would you whether prefer that it was just arranged you were just taken one day and said this is the person you're marrying you don't know much about them you don't know really anything about them we know about them. We're just going to tell you this one. Now, so you have to marry them. I hope, you know, go, prosper, enjoy life. Well, of course you're going to say, there's, when you can choose to love or not love, that love is deeper. That love is stronger. That love is more powerful. It's more fulfilling. It, it, it has the potential for it to grow into something extremely passionate. It's just, it's, it's greater. God understands that. There is no greater love than the love that has the ability not to love. Let me say that. There is no greater love than the love that has the ability not to love. The things you love the most, the truest level of love, are the things that you had the opportunity not to love. God understood that. He put this whole garden in there, right? Whole garden. You can do, you need whatever you want. <clears throat> you can do whatever you want. And he put just one tree and one serpent. It wasn't like there's, you know, you're walking down Bourbon Street in New Orleans and all this temptation. He put one little thing. He said, stay away. That's all he had to do. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to Adam and Eve. I'm going to go, it was one tree. One tree. And you know how many things tempt me every day? You had one tree. One thing. And God, through those two things, he gave them the opportunity to say no. And what that did, it made saying yes so much deeper, so much better. Because only when you have the opportunity not to love does choosing to love someone, that one you have opportunity not to love, only then does it make that love better, stronger, and pure. And Jesus didn't want us, the Father didn't want us just to be robots, like arranged followers of God. We have no choice but to love you. We have no choice but to honor you. We have no choice... That's not enjoyable for the Father, and it's not enjoyable for us. But when I know that I choose, I choose to follow Jesus. I choose to love the Father. I choose to stay true to Him even when life is crazy. When I know that I could choose to make my life about me and go in so many different ways, when I choose to say, I choose to follow Jesus. And my choice, when I, that just makes it so much better and so much sweeter and so much of a greater resolve and so much something I'm far more passionate about because it was my choice. It wasn't, it wasn't something in which it's the only option I had because there was no other choice. It was my choice to follow Jesus. A, ch a love 
that has the opportunity not to love is the purest and most satisfying love there is. And Jesus wanted us to experience the joy of that kind of love, but to do so, he had to have the risk that we would say no. And as a result of that, you have to have choice. You have to have choice. And the tree and the serpent were that choice. And unfortunately, humanity chose to buy in, and thus sin came. But still to this day, that choice remains. We can choose not to follow Jesus. You'll never be forced to follow Jesus. And the opportunity not to follow Jesus makes the choice to follow Jesus a better choice. The opportunity not to love Jesus makes the opportunity to love Jesus because I don't have to, but I choose to. It makes that choice and that love a love of great potential, a love of great passion, and a love that comes in and satisfies deep within us. And so as a result of that, he put something in there that looks out of place, but it made my love and my opportunity to love him so much better. Six great questions, and if you want to follow up and, uh, uh, discussion on that, I'll be happy to stay around. And it doesn't have to be a Sunday like this, holiday weekend, that we do and ask the pastor. Anytime you have a question, give me a holler. I would love to have discussions because I love to discuss God's truth. I love to discuss God's principle in everyday life. Next week, we will uh, start our new series, My Big Fat Mouth, and we're going to look at what God has to say about the words that come out of your mouth.